uh, one of the original teachers at Spirit Rock. I've been leading classes like this and retreats um, here and there for now almost 30 years. And I sit here today with, um, with a lot of uh, joy in my heart and a lot of confidence in, uh, in the, um, the liberating, joy-inducing, just the, um, the healing power of, uh, of insight meditation, of mindfulness. And uh, so it's really easy for me to come and sit here, and, and I'm so happy for you that you are giving yourself the gift of yourself. Uh, as one uh, poet put it, the one who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart, who you tend to get uh, lose touch with. We tend to lose touch with ourselves. And that's really a fundamental issue that human beings have. And the beauty of practice is you're never more than a split second, a half breath away from, from home. No matter how far you've wandered in your imagination, no matter no matter uh, how terrible you think things may be, uh, right in this very moment, you can, each of us can discover a, uh, a place of peace and ease, of balance, of uh, intelligence and wisdom that, uh, that's always been there, but we, like I said, we've ignored it. We haven't recognized that, uh, the gifts that we have within ourselves. So today we will, um, how many of you are new to Spirit Rock? Wow, many. Okay. So welcome to Spirit Rock. Uh, as you can see, Spirit Rock is a beautiful place, and I hope you just, uh, I don't know why the word is coming through my mind, but I hope you exploit the beauty of the place, really take it in, let yourself mingle with the nature here. Uh, but the practice that we'll be doing today is, I call it a back-to-nature practice. It's back to our own nature, the nature of our bodies, the nature of our breath, the nature of what it means to be a human being. Uh, not the idea of it, but the immediate and direct experience. We are incredibly uh, skilled and practiced at uh, thinking about ourselves, but we're not, very, we're not very practiced at experiencing ourselves directly. Does this make sense, this difference? Thinking about ourselves versus knowing ourselves directly. And our practice of meditation is really simply about creating the conditions to feel what's, what it's like to be here. For you, even right now, to, to stop for a moment and see what it's like when you don't look forward into the, what we call the imagined future. doesn't exist anyway. Don't look back into the imagined past, it doesn't exist anyway. And just let yourself rest here in the present moment. And forget even the idea of present moment, just be here. And forget even the idea of here. And notice what you experience immediately and directly, right here. Of course, we have to use words, so it's hard to... And you'll notice that just here, is never as bad as uh, what our thoughts are about our life or our situation. It's very, life in the immediate, in reality, is very simple. Our minds tend to, and we're much more practiced at complicating our lives. So the practice of meditation, hopefully, will give you uh, a sense of the difference, at least the difference between 
your immediate and direct experience and the amazing um, stories and descriptions and elaborations that our mind uh, makes about experience. And how we often mistake reality, we mistake our stories and our elaborations about reality for the, for the real thing. So this is practices for people who are interested in reality. Not virtual reality, not the imagined reality. We're interested in that and the fact that our mind has this amazing creative capacity to imagine and create and dream and vision. All that is fantastic. But often in our, our absorption, in our fantasies, we miss the most, um, the deepest sense of richness deepest sense of um, the place where we love, which is only and always here and now. I know this is all makes uh, perfect sense to you. Uh, but, but it's a matter of whether we actually live here or not, instead of just imagine it. So we'll be using a lot of words called present and uh, mindfulness, but it really comes down to the simple... Uh, realization, recognizing that you have within you, for some reason when I say you have within you, I think of the words of uh, Albert Camus, the existentialist, who says, in the midst, who said, in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. You have within you that which follows you, that is a, a refuge, that is a that is a support, follows you through your highs, through your lows, uh, through your gains, your losses, your, the p times that you are praised, the times that you are blamed, uh, the times that you have pleasure, the times that you have pain. And that, and that one thing is sometimes called the Buddha, which simply means awake, this capacity to be aware and awake uh, to the reality of what's happening. And that is, in, instead of that's one of those things that we, again, I'll use the word exploit. We, we actually get used to it, we get to know it, and we strengthen it. That's what you'll be doing all day long today. Any questions about anything I've said so far? Okay. So how do we do that? The first and perhaps the most important thing that we can do, uh, well, I think there's a few, few little ground rules that I, that I found helpful and I think people have found helpful for the last 2,600 years. So when I say 2,600 years, it's a reminder that this is not some kind of new age thing, uh, California-based. It's, <laughs> it's not about having meaningful eye contact and eating the right vegetables. Well, a little bit of that. And it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. It's basically about three things that we will really take care of today that are different than what we usually, where we usually go to for refuge is where? We go to our smartphones. The refrigerator. The refrigerator. <laughs> we go to our fantasy life, which is... Again, the uh, imaginary. We go, to, uh, we go to as much contact as we can have with others. 
but often it has a kind of compulsive, needy quality to it. And that's all because we're not at home with ourselves. We, we tend to, because we all want, as a human being, we're vulnerable. Every single person is vulnerable. It's, it just, it comes with the territory since we're all, as one uh, teacher, teacher put it, we're all sinking ships from the moment we're born. That makes us a little nervous. <laughs> and the way that we deal with that is we, um, we try to distract ourselves any way we can. So if you were to th think of coming here on Saturday, June 29th, 2013, and you had no idea what you were going to, to learn here, and you walked in the room and I said, this is what we're going to do all day. We're going to think all day become as lost in thought as we can. We are going to feed every single desire that we have, feed the wanting mind. We are going to cling to whatever we have. And we are going to, uh, let's see, what else are we going to do? We are going to distract ourselves any way we can. What would you do? You'd, you'd chuckle a little bit. But what does it sound like? <laughs> it sounds like what we're trained to do from the moment we're born. So we're actually, I'm, if you come to Spirit Rock, which is a center that is based on the teachings of the Buddha, and when I say that it's based on the teachings of the Buddha, at the time of the Buddha, there was no such thing as Buddhism. Buddhism was a, um, is a 19th century colonial creation. This whole notion of isms, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, these are really designations for at least at the time of the Buddha, was just called the, the Dharma of the Buddha, the, the Buddha's, the teachings of the Buddha. This human being who is just like us. And he also, because he was human, was subject to the same vulnerabilities that all of us are. And, and he, relative to other humans, other people of his time, had enormous privilege, which was really a lot like us, uh, relatively speaking, <coughs> and my glasses are so dirty. And like us, he felt a, a, a chronic sense of restlessness and dissatisfaction that there was something a little bit off. Any of you ever feel that? And he had tried uh, unsuccessfully to find a reliable refuge in what was, what was offered as a source of well-being and happiness. And what was that? It was as much good food, as much uh, drink, as much entertainment. Uh, and he found th these things were incredibly pleasurable, but they seemed to, all the pleasures of the world seemed to leave in their wake a feeling of more dissatisfaction. And so it, he, it really stirred him up. And then it, when he started to think a lot about the fact that he was going to die, the fact that he, if you were, you were, he was likely to experience some sickness in his life, old age, that nobody can avoid that. It just comes with the territory. He saw that it, what he had been using to find relief from that was also things that, couldn't, that were also subject to change and unreliability. So he was left with no guidelines, guideposts about how to, how to find something reliable to, to 
guide his way to be able to be free and happy in this precious life. And there's a, there's a, lot, of, uh, there's a lot of talk in the teachings about this precious existence, this precious life. It's, uh, it's extraordinary when we actually experience it in its immediacy. And it's, it doesn't last that long. And it's an amazing opportunity, it's considered an amazing opportunity to, um, to awaken. So anyway, what happened is he, he um, I'll give you the longer version later, but the shorter version is that what he realized through all his trials and tribulations was that the only reliable refuge, it wasn't in the, it wasn't in the, um, in food or alcohol or uh, music or anything. It, what he found was the only reliable refuge was the very nature of his own mind. Not the content of his own mind, that was also a support, but the, the, the nature of being aware itself. Just the fact of being aware. So notice what it's like when you're simply aware, again, not looking forward, not looking back. You'll find that this, the, the capacity to be aware, that awareness, it, this may, it's so invisible that it, you can't really, it's so um, close that it's hard to know what that means exactly. But if I tell you right now to stop being aware, you may get that sense, oh yeah, I'm aware. Now that aware is quiet. That aware, aware is awake, it's receptive, and when, it, and when it's practiced over and over again, when we're here more, more of the time, our lens widens. I'm aware right now of you, and you're aware of me. And when we're aware of each other, there, there develops a kind of intimacy, a, a connection. We start to plug into life, not just the idea of it, but the immediacy of it. And when we do that, our hearts quiver a little bit. We think, whoa, I'm alive. And we realize that aliveness that comes with being aware is it's inexhaustible. It's, it's divine, you could say. I don't know if any of this makes sense, but I love talking about it. <laughs> so he realized that in the midst of, of everything, there was this invincible, this inexhaustible uh, resource called the Buddha, called being awake, and that everybody has. It's not just that historical person saw that all of us have this capacity. And then the, the rest of his life, 46 years, 45 years after that moment he realized that, and after he tracked how he came to that to that understanding, he spent 40, those next 45 years talking about it, telling people how to, how to, uh, to, make, how to exploit this, how to make use of, of this, uh, this capacity that we have to be aware. And what he offered, those teachings that he offered were called the Dharma. The Dharma is the teachings, the, the way, which is simply a description in a way it's a description of the way life is when we, and what we can understand when we see things clearly. And the, the definition of vipassana or insight is to see things clearly, see things as they are, not as we imagine them to be, want them to be, could be, should be, would be, but just how they are. 
And so that, that speaks to the laws of nature as they unfold in our life, just what, how things work. You know, one example is if you hold on tightly to experiences that are changing, what happens? Suffering. You suffer. You get rope burn. If you let go, you feel more free. So that's just one simple example. If you act with ill will, you tend to, it tends to come back at you. If you act with love, it also tends to come back. Little things like that, but it's an elaborate teaching, but very simple, very common sense. But Dharma in the most immediate sense, and this is the second thing that we, that we choose as our refuge today. Instead, we, both, we choose the refuge of being aware. And if you take on this practice, if you're interested in it, there's basically these three things that you take care of. You take care of practicing being awake or aware. You take care of the Dharma, which is that these, you, you utilize these teachings that help support you uh, paying attention and living wisely. But the Dharma in the most immediate sense is, the Dharma means truth. And the truth is whatever you're experiencing right now. That's what we take refuge in. We don't take refuge in how we want things to be. We can have lots of fantasies and goals and visions, and that's beautiful. But where we truly get our juice, we, get our, we, get our, we find our peace, is when, with things just the way they are. We start there. What are you experiencing right now? And it may, it may be nervousness. How many of you are nervous about meditation? A little bit? Okay. It's to just acknowledge that. Oh, nervousness feels like this. We don't have to undo it. We don't have to get anywhere. We have to keep taking refuge. And we use this word refuge. It means just go. This is a safe place, actually. <coughs> a safe place is your experience just the way it is. What's really unsafe place is your experience as you hope it to be. Because that puts you in a state of anxiety. Because you don't know whether it's going to turn out that way. But if you can learn to settle into your experience just the way it is, even sadness, grief, joy, whatever it is, even if it's a changing condition like the weather, it's, it's just, there's something about it when we say, oh, this is how it is right now. There's something in our heart that relaxes a little bit. So the first one, to be aware. Second one, to, to go to just how it is for refuge. And the third, which is... Uh, which is a little bit, in some ways, more, most obvious and also slightly mystical, which is the way the Buddha suggested is you go to the Sangha. Sangha means community. means the community of others who are interested in these first two things. You, you draw support and refuge for other like-minded people who are interested in reality, interested in being aware, and all that goes along with being aware, which is kind, non-harming, skillful, and you'll find that, uh, that the understanding of that sacred power of, of having, of practicing with good company, uh, it grows as you practice. At first it's, oh, there's a big room of people, and it's, you know, I, I actually don't like being in a room full of so many people, and, but you'll find in the silence that there is a, there's an intimacy and a support 
that is so different than trying to practice home alone or even practice with one other person. You'll feel carried by the, you could say, the flock of, uh, of fellow practitioners. And as you go through the day and you start to feel a little restless or tired or whatever it is, without turning into a beacon head where you're spending all your time looking around, just for a moment, just take in other people are practicing, draw the support. They may be lost in thought, but they're sitting there still. They may be spinning the fantasy of their escape, but here they are. <laughs> and just draw that support. And you'll feel it as the day goes on. So this is basically what are called the three refuges. Refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. It doesn't mean you become a Buddhist. Like I said before, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. He was simply awake. And fortunately, there are countless millions over 2,500 years who, who took the teachings to heart, put them to practice, and they realized their fruits and their benefits. So you don't have to give up any other wisdom tradition or real religion that you feel an affiliation for, that feels in your heart. It's just simply using this, what some have called a, a technology of living, a way of living wisely and lovingly. Uh, you use it as a support for your life, and, and if you really take it on, you can uh, experience, just as he did, what he called the sure heart's release, a, a, a liberating insight into the nature of reality where you, your life becomes passionately, passionately, uh, and inexhaustedly, uh, rooted in the present moment, instead of constantly toppling forward into the imagined future and the imagined past and losing the, the, um, the richness of life just as it's unfolding. So let's, uh, enough, any questions before we do a little sitting? Okay. Well, I'm happy to be with all of you. I, um, I have some confidence that that you will um, benefit by a little practice. It's not a, it can be, especially settling in, it can be a little bit, of, oh, please. Uh, just, I was wondering if you could move that clock, I think it's kind of distracting. And the, that clock. Oh, you don't want to see the time? So it's either you close your eyes or I move the clock. <laughs> no, I'll move the clock. Okay. You can record the instruction. Did you record the first part? So we can speak, I can speak uh, generally about, about the practice of being uh, awake, aware, and present. But because most of us are more trained in uh, being lost in our imagination, uh, lost in the future, the past, and fantasies, ideas of ourselves, that we need uh, support, even though we are naturally aware. That's our natural state. I, you may have sensed that when I asked you to stop being aware. It's really home. 
However, we're so trained at being um, unaware of being aware, lost in thought, that we need the support of, um, of methods, of techniques. And the first and most, perhaps the most important support that we use for our practice, besides those three refuges, is the support of our body. And it, we begin our practice by being aware that we have a body. And so find yourself, find your sense of yourself sitting uh, generally in a general upright position. Let go of any um, ideal of some special way you should sit because um, you don't want to create any excessive tension with your practice. You want to simply have the sense of being upright. And you want your belly to be soft. You want your jaw to be relaxed. You want your eyes to close softly and feel the relaxed touch of your eyes. And the most important thing that we do with our practice again and again is try to place our attention in the same location as our body. And you may want to, as a way of finding the place of most balance and ease, shift from side to side or front to back till you find a center point where sitting upright is most effortless. And then as much as you're able to, maybe taking a few deep breaths just to start. And with each out-breath, just completely let go into the, into the posture. Let go and let everything just drop to the earth, be supported by the earth. And you'll notice that if you can feel this physical body, you are present. The body is always present. This is why the Buddha suggested if there's one thing, O monks, and for the purpose of our time today, you're all monks and nuns. There's one thing, O monks, that leads to the... to great benefit to the sure heart's relief, and that is mindfulness directed to the body. And mindfulness is just that real-time, clear comprehension of what's happening. And the, Yet we direct our attention initially to what's happening in our body. And the way we settle into that is we feel our sitting posture, we feel the contact points of the rear, on the cushion, or the chair. We just let ourselves absorb those sensations. We hover a little bit until we actually feel the sensations of the rear. We feel the sensations of the touch of our hands, whatever they may be touching. The touch of our lips. The touch of our eyes. 
We feel the form of our body, the shape, or that field, that feeling of sensation, that field of sensations that gives the sense of a whole body. Feeling its aliveness, its vibration. It's gentle stillness. And then what the Buddha recommended, and what people have been practicing for 2,600 years now, he recommended that that we allow the, this attention that is so uh, that is mingling right now or connected to our body. We allow our attention to connect with the gentle sensations that are felt when we breathe. And this doesn't mean that you have to try to breathe. We, as we sit, we recognize that our body is breathing, whether we like it or not. I'm, most of us like the fact that we're breathing. We simply feel the sensations that are created by our body breathing, wherever it's felt. And sometimes when we start to pay attention to our body breath, it will change a little bit, but as much as possible, we just let our body breathe and we notice how it feels. We notice where we feel it. We may feel it at the nostrils as the air moves in and out, past our upper lip or past our throat. It may be the gentle rise and fall of the chest or the belly. It may be the sense of the whole body subtly expanding and contracting. We just try to connect with how our body is breathing and we try to sustain that connection as long as it lasts so that it, as much as possible we can feel it through the duration of the in-breath, the out-breath, and then still be present when the next in-breath comes in one half breath at a time. And you'll notice as you attend gently to the movements of your body breath that some breaths will be short Some will be long, some rough, some smooth. And we don't make any attempt to alter that breath. We just notice the differences. And we do this to help gather our attention, to create the conditions for a calm abiding, for concentration, and for a refined sense of what we call mindfulness, or clearly knowing, clearly comprehending what is happening right now. Just this breath, just this moment.
We'll sit at first for about 15 minutes more. As much as possible, let go of time. Let go of the past, the future, even the present. Just feel the breath. If you're human, you will notice that after a few breaths, you're likely to realize that you've been lost in thought. When you notice that your mind has wandered, become filled with thought, that means that you've reawakened, that you're aware again. And when you wake up to where you are, Relax, let go again, and in behalf of staying anchored to this unfolding present, in behalf of staying awake, we connect again with our body and our breath. Very simple, all we're doing is orienting ourselves to this unfolding present. Just this breath, just this moment, again and again reconnecting. Let your attention be soft, yet alert, gentle, yet precise, feeling the texture intimately of this breath, sinking into it. Noticing it. Just this breath.
Some people find it helpful to make a soft mental label with each in-breath and each out-breath. Just a transparent whisper in your mind, in with the in-breath, out with the out-breath. Or rising, falling. Ninety-five percent of the sensitivity to the felt experience of the breath, five percent this little whisper. This can help the mind attention stay connected to this immediate physical experience of breathing. It's completely optional.
So good news or bad news? Often insight at the beginning, this is called insight meditation, often insight at the beginning is, is bad news. We realize our bodies are either restless, tired, minds scattered. Any of you notice any of those things? Um, I'd love to hear a little bit from you, if you don't mind. Uh, and I just want to say that I'd like to invite all of you to, to really feel free to, uh, to voice any questions that you have or comments or descriptions because it's likely that whatever you say uh, will be of some benefit to someone else in the room and so please don't be bashful. And I think this is a time where I can be most useful. So what did you notice and are there any questions, comments, descriptions that, uh, please. If your current feelings are anxiety, grief, or anxiety or grief or anguish, any of the above, that is what you're feeling at the moment. Yes. Are you trying to dodge it, or you're just trying to confront it? Are you trying to dodge it or confront it? Or trying to confront it um, in order to find that safe place. I think dodging and confronting, uh, I don't think either of them are really um, so useful, <clears throat> because they... They, um, when you use the word dodge or confront, you th you are, um, those words imply a kind of strategy. And what we're, if we're using any strategy, it's just to notice what's happening. And so if, the, if, it, is, if it is grief, anxiety, as much as we're able to, we simply acknowledge that we feel the emotion of it. We feel how it feels in our body. We don't try to undo it. We don't try to make anything happen. So we're, so we're not using a strategy to confront or do anything with it other than to acknowledge the truth, the Dharma. That's what's happening right now. Now, for most of us, though, especially if we're not so practiced at meditation, it's really hard to allow our, some of those things. We're so unfamiliar with feeling them directly so used to distracting ourselves or thinking about them that it's, a, that it's maybe even we start to, if we're afraid, we start to feel afraid of being afraid and then it, it compounds. And so for that reason, at first it's helpful to very graciously acknowledge what's happening in the most gentle way, in the most accepting way, but it's perfectly fine, especially at the beginning of your practice, to redirect your attention to the breath to just acknowledge it, bow to it, so to speak, and then put your attention on your breath. So that we, we use the breath as the initial tool of our practice to help, get, help create enough strength of mind, to help enough composure, enough calm, to then be able to meet those kinds of experiences and to meet them equally as we would a breath. But at first we're not usually so practiced at being able to do that. So it's helpful at first just to keep coming back to your breath. If, on the other hand, you feel very present, you, you, you feel very strong in your mind, very capable of just being with that feeling, explore it. Just say to yourself, oh, this is what anxiety is like. This is what grief is like. Because ultimately, we don't try to undo any of those things. We try to simply recognize that this is what's happening. And then the good news is about whatever we notice, we start to see three, three common things about it that, um, uh, but I'll only speak of one of them right now. 
we start to see that whatever comes into our mind also then goes out of our mind. We start to see for ourselves that even though there may be a, a wave of retching grief, that grief is like a weather front, it's a changing condition. And we can learn to develop a kind of confidence that says, okay, I can feel this weather front. Just like I can feel the outer weather, I can feel the inner weather. And by doing that, by allowing it to take its course just as we do the outer weather, that experience becomes one of, of you could say, centering. It, becomes a, it, it, it develops a kind of confidence that you can sit in the middle of it all. But at first, we're not, we're not usually um, able to do that so easily because we're just not practiced at it. Does that speak to your question or no? For now, it's up to you. You can either feel it or direct your attention back to your breath. Anyone else, please? What do I do with um, music in my head? Because sometimes it almost feels there's a piece of music and it almost. Um, so what do we do with a piece of music? My question is, what do I do with a piece of music in my head? Because there's this Chopin piece that was going in my head, and it almost feels... Which tone? Uh, maybe you shouldn't say uh, what it is. I, I won't say. <laughs> uh, it almost feels like another sensation. And if I... I don't know how to not... Rep like, I don't know how to not repress it, but um, not get carried away by it right. at the same time. So mindfulness, I love the way you describe that. You don't want to repress it, you don't want to be carried away by it. And that is the function of mindfulness, to be able to notice things, but not, but not feed it, not suppress it, not interfere with it, but to recognize it as a changing condition, like the weather. And the way that we can do that is um, be more interested in the process of it rather than the particular content. Because you could get into the content of the music and the mood that it creates and, and what it reminds you of. And then it can proliferate into this huge fantasy about how you're going to buy every CD by that person when you get home. And pretty soon your retreat is all about a shopping, uh, shopping <laughs> fantasy. Or you can notice that there is internal hearing. There is hearing. <laughs> And so hearing, we just hear it as sound in the mind. As we can recognize the concept, the, the particular song or whatever, but mostly we want to be interested in what happens to that sound when we hear it, rather than so much the content of it. Sometimes there is a, a song that seems to reflect our mood, and we can sometimes feel the emotional quality connected to that. And that can also it can be something that you include in your being aware. But for the most part, you simply want to hear it, graciously notice that you're hearing it, and then for the, at least at this point in the retreat, uh, let your attention come back to your body breath. And if it keeps repeating itself, be, be easy about that. Basically what you will see in your mind, of course you'll see a lot of things in your mind that may have nothing to do with anything that you know, our minds are, are mysterious and vast, and you, it's, they're wild. And there are lots of things that may seem completely unrelated to you or your personal life. But a lot of what moves through our mind, a huge percentage of it, is the result of what we've practiced. And when I say what we've practiced, is where we frequently dwell in our minds. And if you listen to a lot of music, do you? Yes. You're a musician? It's natural that that's what will come to visit. And you can begin to see how the songs come unbidden. It's not like there was a little agent in there saying, now I'm going uh, to have this song, or now I'm going to have this thought. But you see that they pop into your mind. 
And so we see that everything is the fruit of what seeds that have been planted before. And of course we want to plant some seeds that hopefully will produce uh, in our minds thoughts of love, goodwill, uh, caring, uh, joy, you know, things like that. But we will also have everything. We'll have all the things that people said to us, for better or for worse, uh, the music. So try to be gracious with it. I guess my question is, is it okay to listen to it a little bit if it doesn't carry, if it doesn't carry you away completely? If listening means without any kind of grasping at all, without any kind of, I want this, I want this here for a little longer. Because if you want it there a little bit longer, it will, you're actually, what you're training in that moment is, is trying to hold on. And that eventually will produce rope burn because it will eventually pass and then it, and you also don't want to I'll talk about this now but you'll realize why as you go along in your practice you don't want to practice holding on to anything that what the what the realization is that really um, helped that help helped anyone free themselves from from the sense of, of bondage and suffering is that is the quality of, of letting be, letting go, non-interference. Because our habit is so strong, so conditioned to hold on, to try to hold on to things that are changing. And that's all. Be easy about it, please. And then I saw your hand in the back. I'll get to you the next. Please. Um, so I'm curious about like physical pain and like what to do when you're experiencing. Curious about physical pain. And um, this is on. <laughs> yeah. uh, just how like I struggle with um, the sensation of like not wanting to be with the physical pain and what to do when what our, our practice is supposed to be kind of being mm -hmm. in our bodies and, yes. and being with that and it's so you all heard she struggles with not wanting to be with the physical pain we're just as I was talking about what we see in our mind is the result of what we practice. We have practiced averting our attention from, from anything uncomfortable. We've always associated uncomfortable or unpleasant with suffering. Not because unpleasant is suffering. Unpleasant is just unpleasant. But unpleasant mixed with, I don't want this to be here, turns it into mental suffering. And then we, you can't run fast enough to get away. It, it just It's an endless, endless uh, process of trying to escape because life and our bodies, if, you, if you're present, you will always have some version, not always, but you will, in the course of your life, you'll have a lot of unpleasant. So what we try to do is notice, just feel the, the quality of that feeling. And if, if you notice the resistance to it, or aversion to it, or the desire to distract yourself, you want to notice that too, which you did. So there's nothing to do at that point other than to see both the physical sense and see the, the mental reaction to it. And then, uh, as much as you're able to hang out with the physical, or if it feels too much and your, your reaction is getting so strong that you're not able to pay attention at all, go back to your breath. Yeah. Does that? Yeah. yeah. Please, in the back. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Teresa. comment and an observation, a personal observation, and what I experienced today, this morning, and 
over the past week. Um, I try and do quiet time in the morning for about 30 minutes. And normally for me, what I'm doing in my quiet time, my mind is just racing, just like, you know, everything is popping into my head. What am I going to do today? And I really have to work hard to try and stop that and, and to try and quiet myself. But um, I was talking with a friend of mine, and they mentioned, like, you don't really have to fight it all the time. You know, just let it happen and just, you know, maybe observe it going by. Like if you're sitting at a, a river bank and you that's see right. the water going by, you Beautiful. know, it's, it's going to keep moving. So you just, uh, that's, you know, what's happening, and you just let it go. So once I started doing that, I finally got a lot better for me. And like today was actually really peaceful this morning for me. Um, and it could be partly because I was tired too, because I stayed up really late. So I, I felt really relaxed and I, my mind wasn't racing as much, but then I became more in tune with um, my body. Like I worked out yesterday and I felt, uh, I felt tension in my back, you know, because I was doing back work. And I was able to kind of just focus on on that tension and kind of try and Beautiful. help it to release. So, um, yeah, I just, this week, I really know my mind is not racing as much, and I'm a lot more relaxed. Beautiful. That is such time. a great description of the, what's your name again, Teresa? Teresa. Teresa describes a, a common issue that many people have with meditation, because many of us are, are troubled by our minds, or tormented by our thoughts. Are, and yet, to try to stop them, that, that just increases the sense of torment. Even though it's an innocent and natural desire to want to quiet our mind, in this practice, we don't try to quiet our mind. We try to notice our mind, and we try to notice it without being bothered by it. To let it float by like you're sitting on the edge of a stream and watching things go by. And you'll discover, as Teresa did, that if you're not bothered by, the, by your thoughts, yet you notice them. It's a difference. It's the difference between being lost in your thoughts and being bothered and noticing your thoughts. <coughs> so if you are not bothered by the thoughts, you will notice that they have what we call discontinuity. They will arise and they'll pass. And you'll notice that the mind will eventually quiet by itself. But we don't make that the aim. We, make, we let that be the byproduct of, not be, of just treating it as, as what's happening. And so some mornings it'll be just a, a torrent of, of thoughts. And as much as you can meet that graciously, not be bothered by it, it will eventually quiet. And sometimes it may not quiet for that period. But if you try to stop it, you can gently direct your attention to your breath. But if you're trying to stop your mind, you're actually practicing a subtle form of aversion, of resistance, which is a creating a tension. And any kind of tension in your mind, any kind of resistance to how it is in any moment, actually creates the conditions to, it creates an internal pressure that then produces more thinking. So as much as possible, you want to relax with things as they are, which is what it sounds like you did as you went along. Please. You can wait for the microphone if you don't. It's really nice in this environment because it's very quiet, and I feel like um, it's a little bit easier. But it, I am really distractible. So when I'm at home, you know, I live in kind of a loud neighborhood, and I'm really not successful at all. Um, successful? You say you're in, not successful. What does that mean, success? Like, no, we're not. Like I just said, I, and I don't mean to single you out, but we're not trying to quiet our mind. 
I think like when you when I hear like a car go by or like things, you know. Yes, and so what we would do in our practice, ideally, of course, we want to have as quiet an environment, but, but we all are presented with conditions where it's not quiet, and especially if you live in an urban environment. So what, instead, what we do is simply try to graciously notice hearing. See, if, if, we, if we're reactive to that sound, it actually increases our disease, and actually it makes the quietness and the ease more difficult to find. So we try to treat everything. I call this practice of insight meditation or vipassana, I call it equal opportunity mindfulness, <laughs> where every single thing that comes into your mind, everything that either external or internal, is, um, is, in, is used in your practice. So if it's the cars going by, hearing, hearing, hearing. Try not to get too involved in the content of it. In fact, we'll include sound in the next sitting because you'll hear a lot of sound today, even though it's predominantly rel or relatively quiet. Yeah. And so if, you, if your sense of well-being, if your sense of happiness is dependent on quiet, good luck. <laughs> but if it's, if it's unconditional, which means everything's okay, then uh, everything becomes the cause of your, of your settling. Then you can accept it. Yeah, yeah. So, you, uh, of course, it's ideal if, if we have a, qu a quieter place. We tend to then be able to mingle with the quiet. We've, the quiet, external quiet, tends to reflect back the, the inner quiet of the mind. And that's wonderful, but that's not very reliable. Pleasure. Okay, one more, and then we'll, I'll offer some walking meditation. I just wanted to offer the, another perspective on that. What was most uncomfortable for me was the quiet. I was hoping there was going to be music, and then when there wasn't, I panicked a little bit. Uh -huh. And then every time you spoke, I was happy. And then I was listening to the bird. I could hear a bird, I, the air conditioner, and I was really happy that there was some sound because the quiet was really uncomfortable for me. So thank you, so, thank you so much for saying that because some, if you're not used to the quiet, it, it can be a little bit confronting at first. Yeah. Uh, however, there, there is inevitable in our life quiet. And it is, if one can, and part of our practice is to develop comf comfort with quiet, first of all, and then to be able to sense and find comfort in our own inner quiet. And at first, that may not be the case. We can, we're only comfortable if we're thinking or planning or... Or listening to something. And that, that leaves us, and I, I think you probably know that from your own experience, that leaves us in a very vulnerable place. That I'm happy when it's busy, I'm unhappy when it's not. And the whole point of this particular practice is to discover a sense of well-being and happiness that doesn't depend on conditions being any particular way. And that's what's different from ordinary sense pleasures, the pleasure of hearing somebody's voice, ordinary sense pleasures, which are innumerable and the, the happiness of, of being awake, which doesn't depend. And I'll say more about that as the day goes on, but thank you for saying that. And I would just invite you to try, to try to explore what those reactions are like to the quiet. And of course, if, it becomes, uh, if, if you become really panicked, in, <laughs> if you become a little panicked, then open your eyes, look around, really take in the visual, the, the, the company. It's an acquired taste, and, but Really, by and large, it's user-friendly. It will, it, will, um, it will get easier. And I think you, you will fall in love with silence. 
I, I really have a lot of confidence in that. Okay, so I appreciate everyone's comments and questions and just being here together. So it's, it's very rare in this world. This is, uh, uh, the Buddha described this as against the stream. And uh, the, against the stream means that uh, the stream of conditioning that most of us live under is, uh, like I said before, those operating, those instructions that you would get if you were to just drop in here, the normal worldly instructions. It's just distraction any way you can. Fill the space with, with noise. And uh, so, so this is, a, this is against a, what we're um, basically taught to do. And unfortunately, our way of being, uh, even though we all want to be happy, has truly not made anybody happy. And it's made us mostly increasingly dissatisfied and uncomfortable with just being ourselves, being here. So this is about reclaiming, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, reclaiming your heritage. He says, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. Yet, all of us have an enormous amount of conditioning and so you want to be able to treat your difficulty, your restlessness, your, the sleepiness that comes from being moving all the time, you want to treat that with a lot of kindness and mercy. Because we all of our habits we've developed innocently, uh, just based on what we were taught by our parents, the messages we get every day. One, this is, uh, speaks of our conditioning. This is a, a woman named Amy Krauss Rosenthal who wrote this editorial in the New York Times. It's very dated, but I think you'll still get the point. It's called Sweet Nothing. How have you been? Busy. How's work? Busy. How was your week? Good. Busy. You name the question, busy's the answer. <laughs> yes, yes, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things. But I think more often than not, busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. <laughs> Certainly there are more in interesting, more original, more accurate ways to answer the question, how are you? I'm hungry for burrito. <laughs> I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated with everything that's broken in my home. I'm itchy. Yet, busy stands alone <laughs> as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I am busy is the short way of saying, implying my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you, therefore, should think well of me. <laughs> Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy, too? <laughs> this week is crazy. I've got about ten caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? <laughs> I have a hunch that there is a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase of busyness. Look at us. We're all pros now at hailing cabs, making Xeroxes, carpooling, performing surgery with a to-go cup in hand. We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. As kids, our stock answered almost every question. What did you do at school today? What's new was nothing. In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. <laughs> then somewhere on the way to adulthood, we 
each took a 180 degree turn. We cashed in our nothing for busy. I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should try reintroducing it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing. I say it a few times. I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated, meditative. Nothing. Now I'm practicing emptiness, a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond. Nothing, nothing, nothing. How did I get so far away from it? So, of course, the practice of meditation is not nothing, but it, it is an activity of stopping. It is the activity of, of realizing the, the extraordinariness of the, of the ordinary sense of being, that we are beyond everything. There is a reason why we are called uh, human beings. We're not called human doings. <laughs> so that's, we want to get used to that again. And when, they, when you hear in the teachings, in the, what are called the sutras, they often will describe abiding in sati, which is, sati is the word for mindfulness. It means abiding. It means being mindful, not doing mindful. But at first, of course, there is some doing to orient ourselves. We collect ourselves. We, we try to harmonize our mind and body. But it's really all on behalf of learning how to be, how to be in our own skin. Just try it for one moment. As I said before, don't look back, don't look ahead, just be here. And you'll find that, uh, that there's a, a little, maybe, a little glimpse of, of ease and peace. Not because you did anything, it's because you didn't do anything. <laughs> you just were aware. So clearly we do a lot of movement in our life, though. We do a lot of activity. And one does not have to abandon that sense of being even as we move and even as we move quickly. But for our purposes it's important to uh, at least to to get to know ourselves a little more. It's helpful as you go through today to be very relaxed but to slow down a little bit. To realize that no matter what you're doing here you're not going anywhere. That the whole purpose is arrived at the present moment. And uh, just as uh, Alan Watts, a famous uh, Zen teacher, put it, people who make music don't do it in order to get to the end of the composition. Uh, or people who dance don't dance to arrive in a particular place on the floor. And music, the playing is the point, and dancing, dancing is the point. It's, the point is always arrived at in the present moment. So that spirit today is Perhaps you can just have as a little, a few words going through my, your mind. I'm not going anywhere. There's nothing to do, nothing to undo, no place to go. And see what that feels like for a moment. And then, right now, we'll do a little what's called walking meditation. How many of you have done walking meditation before? Many of you have. So those of you who haven't can, um, can copy the people. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll give some instructions. <laughs> Walking meditation is something that is maybe, of all the things that we do here, the most portable. It's something that you can take into your daily life, and because we do a lot of walking. But often our walking is, is uh, a time that we spend lost in thought, planning, trying to get somewhere, and forget the step that we're actually taking. So here, even though we will be walking, 
we will be continually reminding ourselves that we're not going anywhere. And to help with that, we choose an area instead of taking a walk, which you may want to do at some point in the day, but for the formal walking periods, we choose a space about 10 or 20 steps long, and we walk to and fro. And the first thing you'll notice is that you're not going anywhere. So the point is to arrive in the step you're taking. And what we do is we put our eyes about six feet ahead of us. Just, we don't need to look at our feet. They'll be fine. Eyes a little ahead so that we see where we're going. And then we, instead of attending to our breath, which we were doing as our primary anchor in the sitting practice, as our initial tool to help us bring our mind and body together, in the walking we draw our attention instead to the contact of our feet and the movement of especially the lower leg through space. So we feel the experience of lifting our foot and swinging it and placing it. And at first you'll just walk at a pace that's slightly slower than your natural pace, just so you can get the hang of it. But slow enough that you can actually feel it. And you'll notice that if you slow it down a little bit, don't turn it into a religion of slow. And don't compare yourself to other people, because all of our temperaments are a little bit different. But you start with a little slower than your natural pace, and just make sure that you actually feel that step. And you can even in your mind, you can just notice stepping, stepping, or left, right, just to help you stay connected to it. And then as you slow, if your mind starts to settle, and a key in, is to allow your mind to settle, and don't force it. If you, don't, if you force it, then you're, you'll start to build up tension. And it's essential, there's four things that are really essential in walking meditation, is that you walk at a pace that you can stay relaxed, that you can stay attentive, present, that you can stay interested, and you can stay in balance. You walk too slowly and your mind is not settled, you, you might teeter or might not be in balance. But if you walk, so you just tune into what pace is in, important for you. But incline toward a little slower, you'll start to notice a little more. The more you notice, the more interesting it's likely to become the feeling of walking. We do it every day, but we don't feel it. We tend to be so far ahead of ourselves. So you want to have this sense of settling back into the moment, just inhabiting your steps as though that life is carrying your body, carrying you. The walking is being, you're being walked in a way. And then you want to have that sense of the lift, the swing, and the place. You can even have those little words in your mind, lifting, placing, lifting, moving, placing, uh, and just walk to and fro. Uh, hands, help, hopefully your hands aren't swinging too much, either in front of you, behind your back, in your pockets, or just hanging comfortably. Most of your attention with your legs moving. Now, I want to just say two more things about that. Maybe we'll take one practice step before you, and after the practice step, I'll just invite you to head out. But notice how I have, um, I'm, I'm sitting here, you're sitting there, and I have this meditative presence. I'm aware of sitting, aware of my posture. This is, in a sense, what I call the Buddha being awake, noticing the Dharma, the truth of whatever my experience is. That makes sense? Okay, the Buddha, the Dharma. Okay. Now, the Buddha, awake, wakefulness, is still there, but now I've changed postures. Now the Dharma is the standing posture. And so you want to come, go to the end of your walk, your path. Now I invite all of you to stand up. 
So the only thing that changed was the posture. They're still, you still are aware, right? So not, that part has not changed. So that this aware, this capacity of being aware, has no posture. The Buddha said practice in every posture, sitting, standing, lying down, moving to and fro. doesn't matter. The key is that you have this quality of noticing. So I'm, now, I'm, now they're standing. And I want to feel that feeling of the contact of the feet on the floor. And I want to let go of the idea of feet and the idea of floor and feel what those sensations are like. Because we don't feel feet on floor, we feel sensation. So move beyond that concept of leg and feet and floor and feel what the underlying world of sensation is. What is it? Anybody willing to say? Pressure. Pressure. Solid. Solid hardness. Anybody have tingling or coolness or heat? So what we're doing is we're opening to the, the world of the elements of earth, air, fire, and water. What, what really unites us with every, all, everything else in nature are the elements. Okay, you want to let your weight shift gently to the, what we call our right foot. Just notice the change of sensations and then back into the left foot. And then while the weight is on the left foot, draw the attention to the right and take a very deliberate step, being aware of the lifting of that foot, the felt experience of it, the moving of it, and the placing of it. And then back to the original spot, aware of the foot that's moving primarily, lifting, moving, placing. So the Buddha, in this case, the Buddha noticing the Dharma is just noticing these steps. It's no different than noticing the breath, no different than noticing a sound. While you're, so while you're doing your to and fro, in the same way as in the sitting, you may realize that you, your mind starts drifting into, the, into fantasy and you may, for a while, not even know that you're thinking. You may just be lost in thought. It's just that thoughts arose and there was no clear comprehension of what was happening. There was no mindfulness. But eventually mindfulness comes, rises again and we notice, oh, I've been lost in thought. I've been, for the last 10 minutes, I've been on the beach in Mexico. I'm actually, but I'm here again. So at that point, you never want to judge the fact that, you're, that mindfulness didn't show up with all, the, with all the thoughts that you're having. You want to appreciate that there's now wakefulness and now you have that quality of clearly comprehending what's happening. You're awake again. So at that moment, you want to relax everything and then very gently put your attention back on your steps. And just keep using your steps to help you stay here. And be very gracious, very easy when you realize how much of the time you spend wandering around. And uh, just walk at a pace, again, that you can stay relaxed. It may not be so slow. Uh, that you can stay attentive, that you can stay interested, and that you can stay in balance. Any questions before we go on? Okay, we'll now have a 20-minute walking period. That, means, that includes a, a five-minute getting to your walking spot. So there'll be 20 minutes. So in about 25 minutes or so, a gong will be rung to uh, alert you to come back, and we'll sit again. So ideally, we want to have a, a sense of a a seamless flow of, of mindfulness. We want to be aware of both this transition period, be aware of walking out of the room, but don't do it too slowly, going through the door especially, and aware of the walking, 
aware of coming back, and then land on your cushion with the full, um, full force of mindfulness. Do you want us to go outside? Uh, it's optional. You can walk in the back of this room. You try to walk so as many people can walk as possible. And, uh, but anywhere on the property except above the gate where we have a residential retreat going on up the, up the hill. So find your spot and the gong will bring you back. Thank you. If anybody wants Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.